You're listening to Angel Nears, the podcast. Angel Nears is a Silicon Valley community for startup builders where founders and operators share their firsthand knowledge on how to build and scale startups. I'm your host, Oleg Kujikov, and our guest today is Michael Nusimov, the founder and CEO of Dr. Chrono, an all-in-one EHR practice management and billing solution for all sizes of medical practice. Uh, I'm excited to bring Michael on to talk CEO Tradecraft and his learnings after 14 years as a first-time CEO. Today is also a special show because Michael was my former employer at Dr. Chrono, so I actually experienced a lot of this firsthand. Since then, Dr. Chrono has been acquired and Michael has moved on, but I just wanted to include that note for the journalistic integrity of our podcast. With that out of the way, you know, we're ready to get started. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you, Oleg. Excited to talk to you. And um, yeah, let's just jump right into it. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got started, your background, and how you got started as an entrepreneur? Uh, Getting started as an entrepreneur is always kind of a big leap for everyone. You just kind of start a company. For me, I, after graduating from college, I got a job in New York City working for a company called Bloomberg LP, which is a really large financial information and news company that has a large software product. And I worked there for about seven years. And uh, I think the reason I started a company was uh, a couple of factors. One, my father was an entrepreneur. He ran his own construction business and more of a service-oriented business. And uh, I kind of learned a lot from watching him as I was growing up. And uh, I, you know, that was a value I always had, that kind of being in business for yourself is, is a valuable thing. Although I think post-college, I kind of went into the corporate world. And you know, at the time I joined Bloomberg, it was about a 9,000-person company. It's probably much larger today. Uh, so it's kind of a large corporate job. And I'd say after seven years there, I grew a little disillusioned with the large corporate world and my views of it. So I was kind of willing to try entrepreneurship and starting my own company. And I was also at that time really inspired by the writings of Paul Graham, uh, which a lot of entrepreneurs probably are. And if, if no one has, if people listening to this haven't read it, you can go to paulgram.com and, and read some of his essays. I think I especially remember the, his essay on wealth. Uh, it's called Wealth or Creating Wealth. It was really powerful and it kind of shook my mindset up a lot from working in kind of a large corporation to wanting to go and do my own startup. So yeah, and I kind of just took the leap by leaving a big corporate job and just kind of diving in and I think that's kind of the theme. What I wanted to talk about today is I, I really feel like I jumped into starting a company and being a CEO without knowing anything about it, really. And that was kind of a theme I thought we could discuss today is like kind of what I learned from kind of going really from zero, from knowing nothing to, you know, being a moderate success in the startup world. And just kind of I, I feel like I did learn, you know, this set of lessons that these are things I wish I had known or gotten some coaching on when I when I started day one or even before it gotten started. Okay. Let's put a pin in it. I, I want to talk to you about all that, but really quickly, like you, you left a corporate job that was probably paying you quite well to go start a company. What was it about like Paul Graham and wealth that made you want to take such a big leap? You know, I, I think around the time I, I left Bloomberg to start my company was around the 2008, 2009 time period. And in a very practical sense, uh, and this might be unique to that time, I remember just kind of feeling I was earning a good salary. And I remember I had a really cheap studio apartment uh, that was, you know, very low cost. I remember it was five flights of stairs. So I stayed in good shape going up and down those stairs. 
And uh, it was a great, you know, living in New York City was really a great and fun and exciting time. But just as I looked at what I wanted to do with my life, especially like buying a house, I remember around that time, even though I felt like I was earning a good salary, it seemed like it would have been like a really big goal to even like buy a condo or one bedroom apartment in New York City, which is always very expensive for the people who live there. But even as I just thought about that lifestyle, it seemed like a real grind. And even as I thought about how do you grow your career in a corporation, it's it could be very challenging, I think, especially on the engineering side to work your way up to manager and, and kind of, you know, and I just kind of wanted something more, you know, I just kind of felt, you know, you could go and, and work really hard at the job, but without an ownership stake, without kind of an equity stake or, or real ownership in a project, I just felt like I was missing out, you know, kind of, I, I wanted more than I think I could get out of a job in a very cynical way. You know, you kind of can go to your manager and say, Hey, I want to make twice as much money as I'm making this year. How do I do that? Can I just work twice as hard? And in a corporate job, the answer is often no, like you can't do that, right? As crazy as that sounds, you know, it's kind of, they're, they're paying you for your time. They have their own view of your career goals. So I definitely felt the desire to want more. Like I just wanted that. I wanted to get a lot, a lot more out of my career than I was getting. I wanted to kind of, I was always like to work really hard and do things. And I wanted more say in the project. So I think it was a number of factors but in a more practical sense, like I could barely buy like a one bedroom condo. So I was like, you know, I need to do something else with my life. I want to find, you know, I want to kind of get out of the rat race a little bit and try something different. And I think that was a really unique time because there, you know, I had a really stable job being a software engineer in the financial space. And the company I worked for actually had a great policy where they never did layoffs. And that was the time where all of my colleagues, you know, a lot of my classmates who I went to school with who worked at some of the other financial houses as software developers, they were being laid off in droves. So the job security I had, it felt like I was leaving an especially cozy little nest to kind of go out on my own. You know, at the time when other people were, you know, were jealous of that job security, they were looking for a really secure job. A lot of people were being laid off from the financial companies in New York City on the tech side because of the financial crisis at that time. So, it was, it was an especially big jump, but, you know, in hindsight, it was a great move, and I, I wish I'd done it earlier. So it's kind of just a number of factors. So I'm going to plug one of your CEO tradecraft uh, learnings here, which is trust and develop your gut instincts. It sounds like, you know, you might have learned something interesting and, and had more of a, a feeling than a certainty that, that this was the thing to do. So that'll be number one of our, of our tradecrafts. Yeah, you know, the second thing I want to ask about is like, as an entrepreneur, you're, you're kind of job number one. I've heard that storytelling is primarily your job. So would you agree with that? And then tell us like, how did you create your first story of Dr. Chrono? Maybe it was all in your head or, you know, the first time you, you said it out loud to a, a possible, you know, partner or something like that. How did that start? story get created, I guess? What did it look like in the early days? Yeah, I think storytelling is really important. Actually, I, I wanted to tell you a story, not about the company, but about my youth. And <laughs> I think this is something I remember talking about with a group of entrepreneurs. And it was just, you know, what happens early on in your life that affects how you think about leadership. And the story I'll tell you, and it's I think it's one of my first memories I have is about uh, the first dog me and my family had. 
And it was a wonderful dog. I think we got it from a shelter or, or maybe a friend of a family. And it was a beautiful kind of golden retriever like dog. And, you know, I think I was around five or six when we got this dog. But I remember it being one of the best dogs ever, like really super well behaved, really friendly, lovable dog, everything you'd want out of a dog and um, really great dog to have. And I think me and uh, I was the youngest of four, my brothers and my sister, we all loved the dog. And one day we came home and <laughs> our parents sat us down in our family room, um, which kind of had had an entrance on onto the street. And they were telling us, you know, they, they kind of laid down some really hard news on us, which probably, you know, I'm a parent myself now, you know, I could, this happens a lot in families and they're like, you know, kind of our lifestyle, it, it wasn't working out too well having this dog in our lifestyle. And this dog that we all love, we could all agree the dog's great, but you know, there, there is somewhere this dog will be happier. It's, it's now at a farm upstate with, you know, a friend from my mother's workplace and uh, the dog's going to be much happier. And me and my siblings were just all in shock. We were, you know, all just like, what, what, what's going on? And while our parents were giving us this story, um, we heard a scratching at a front door, like our family room let out into, it had a side door to the street. And uh, we kind of didn't want to believe our parents, like a lot of children <laughs> in this situation, but we heard the scratching and we, we went to the door and opened it up and there was our dog. There was our family dog it, and it ran in and me and my siblings. And I was like, you know, I was like five or six at the time. I was the youngest. I think my older siblings were, you know, they were probably like 12, 13 ish, 14. And, you know, I, me and I think my middle brother, we were both like, oh my gosh, our dog is amazing. We knew this was an amazing dog. This dog kind of found its way all the way from upstate. <laughs> and got back and i think my older siblings kind of looked at my parents and like they knew a little better and i remember my parents like they just left the house they just kind of like they just left the house they're a little overwhelmed they didn't know what happened and you know i was just like me and my you know my middle brother he, you know he was only about eight you know maybe, no, maybe he was like eight or nine but he was like we were both like wow we just have the most amazing dog it found its way back from all this way upstate and my, and my siblings, older siblings knew something was up, was like a little darker. And what had happened was my parents had just like went and like let the dog out. We lived in Brooklyn, New York, which is a suburban area. And they just kind of dropped it off somewhere near our house, like out on the street, which was totally reckless. This is, you know, not an ASPCA friendly way to, to get rid of a dog. But they, I think my father just tied it up somewhere. He's like, ah, you know, we found it on the street. Someone else will we'll pick it up. They just wanted to get rid of it with the least effort possible. So really poor reflection of my parents, but you know, kind of that moment where, you know, and, and my older siblings kind of clued me in and, and I think it kind of, you know, my parents came back later that day and they kind of apologized. And, and I think we ended up keeping that dog for several years longer. And there's a happy ending to the story beyond that. But it's, you know, and I just to share that story, what I, how I think it really affects me in leadership and, you know, and I'm a parent now myself is, I really just realized that, you know, in a lot of ways, being a parent is a lot like being a leader. And I think both parents and leaders, like you're only like one or two steps ahead of your children or of the people in your company. You're not a, on like some, you're very human. You make mistakes. You, you have errors in judgment and you're not on like some totally different level. You know, and I think with my parents, they were like one or two steps ahead. And, you know, sometimes something can happen where you just have to, you know, leave and, 
you know, and I, and I will say there's a happy ending to this story where on the way back from wherever my parents had dropped this dog off, which was not a responsible place to leave it, our dog got pregnant because I remember later on within like probably within a couple of months, another of my memories is our dog had puppies and we got to like raise the puppies. <laughs> so there's a happy ending to the story. You know, my parents wanted to get rid of this dog. And they ended up getting the dog pregnant and having to deal with a bunch of puppies that were very cute. And we did responsibly find homes for them. So I think we all learned something. But, you know, and I, I also reflect on this story and I really think about how I always felt as a leader. And I, I always kind of kept this in mind. I was always a little bit cynical of it. I was always like, you know, it's, it's easier when you're the leader and you're one or two steps ahead of people to try and paint. You know, you have this kind of reality distortion field. You try and paint a pretty picture of how everything's going. But it's important to be honest because, you know, you could be caught at these times kind of with, you know, kind of with your pants on or kind of with, <laughs> you know, the truth on display. You know, the truth will show up to your front door and everyone will realize that and it could cost your credibility. So it's something I always thought about. You know, I was always very cynical of leadership. And I think when I became a leader myself, I really thought about it. Just I know it doesn't answer your question on story time, but I just wanted to share that story because to me, I always think it really influenced me a lot of how of how I view other leaders and how I view myself. And, you know, just that's something I always think about is like, you know, the, the truth is always out there waiting to come scratching or knocking at your front door. So you've always got to, you know, you're a couple steps ahead of, of your, of the group you're leading. You know, I, I think sometimes you find out bad news or, or you have, you know, there's things going on that you can't always share with people, you know, whether it's like your fundraising is a big one. I give as an analogy, like, you're always on the eve of closing around and these things fall apart. So there's things you kind of have to keep under your hat and not share with everyone, but you need to kind of have a consistency where you're not lying to people. You're not telling, you know, a farm dog story to people <laughs> that, Hey, you know, you know, the farm's on the dog. It's, it's in doggy. It's, it's in heaven for dogs. It's on this farm where, you know, it's playing with all these other wild dogs and all these other, you know, lost animals it's, you know, you want to be honest with people and, and let them know what's going on, but you also have to, you know, operate in a way where you know a bunch of things that are going wrong, you know a bunch of things that are potentially really awesome that you can't share yet, that could drastically change how things are going. And you can't share them for a number of reasons. I, I think fundraising is the most, you know, there were dozens of times I feel in my career, it's this year of Dr. Crono, where you're always close to closing a big funding round that will change everything. And, you know, if you share that with people, you know, inevitably the deal will fall apart or get delayed or, you know, and, and people will be really disappointed. So you kind of always have to operate with, you know, just so when you're, you're telling these stories, <laughs> you know, you can't believe your own stories or you're a step ahead of people. But you've got to always, you know, give people an optimistic view of what's going on, but be pragmatic and, and just always know the truth and, you know, unexpected things could come to your door at any moment. So you've got to always be ready for that. Well, it's a really interesting story. There's like a lot to respond to. It's one of those seminal stories. It's really interesting because it happened to you so young. I think one key takeaway for me was that like you kind of had this realization that your parents aren't like on another level. They're just like a couple steps ahead. And when you're a leader at a startup, it's the same thing. As employees under leadership, you kind of have this idea that leaders, they sound so good. You know, they're so smart. They started this company. I didn't start a company. They must know something I don't. And they probably do, but they're not like on another level. They're just like several steps ahead 
I, I want to bring this back, I guess, to the CEO Tradecraft. And we're talking about stories, but let, let's move to values. How do you kind of define your your values and then how do you share that with the team? What, what was your strategy there? Sure. And I'll share a little bit and... I, you know, at Dr. Cronwell, the last few years I was there, and I don't remember, I think at least the last five or six years, I ran a program called like Meet the CEO, where all the new employees at the company, I would sit down with them. And I found the ideal size for this kind of group was somewhere in the ballpark of like four to eight people. Like I, I didn't like to do it one-on-one because I, I felt it's a little weird to sit down one-on-one with somebody and kind of give them a presentation like that. It's a little more organic to have a conversation or one-on-one sent to be for different uses. So I felt the small group was good, but I didn't want a really large group. I felt like eight people was the upper limit. Upper limit. So sometimes if we're hiring really quickly, I would do a few of these sessions and I would usually take a few hours. And initially it was just to meet meet the new employees and get to know them. I wanted to try and make an effort to, to learn people's names, especially at that point when, when I was no longer involved in hiring for most roles that weren't executives. I wanted to you know see you know, match names and faces, get to know about the backgrounds of people. And I thought initially I I wanted to share with them a couple of things. One was the history of the company. And I would spend time kind of telling a story about the founding of the company and and answer questions. And I'd spend a lot of time doing that. And the other, I would also want to talk about values a little bit. And I think the first sessions I did, and I would probably take a couple of hours to do them, sometimes two or three hours, depending on, on the session and, and how many people and, and you know, what, what else was going on that day. And I found, you know, the early sessions were probably 90% history and, and a little bit at the end, 10% on values. And I really changed it over time to get rid of the history section and just focus on a conversation about values and doing some exercises. And I'll, I can give a little bit of that presentation about what I think values are. And, and I would also say initially when I started the company, and maybe with, you know, going back to my farm dog story, I was very cynical of values. <laughs> I was very, I didn't believe them. I thought big companies have all these values. And I remember meeting a CEO of a company once and they were talking about values. And and I, I asked the person and it was like over a meal. I was like, oh, so what are your values? He's like, oh, I don't know. They're up on our company website. You could go read them if you want. Whatever those values are, the, the heads of the company didn't believe in them. So it's some marketing speak. And that's kind of what I've always thought of corporate values. They're always really generic and not very meaningful. But so I'll give you my little, a little talk about what I think are values. And this kind of comes, I evolved this talk about based on other conver- other talks I've seen and, and what I would do with the employees for the values onboarding. And I think there's a few different definitions of values that, that I think are real values. One that I thought was really interesting is values are controversial. So it's something unique to a person or company's worldview that other people can publicly take an opposing view on. So one example I'll give is move fast and break things was Facebook's, one of Facebook's core values for early on in their company for a long time. I don't know if it still is or not at Meta with what they're doing, but that spirit of move fast and break things is in a lot of Silicon Valley startups. And But I would say other companies can publicly take the other side of that. When you go log into Citibank or ChaseBank.com, or you know, a financial institution that wants to build a lot of trust, they're not going to have the move fast and break things motto. They're going to have, we're meticulous, we're safe, we do things slowly. 
So that's, you know, we use cutting edge technology could be a value. And that's something other people could publicly take the other view of, you know. So what I think this helps cut through is like there's a lot of values like we put the customer first. And that's not a controversial value because no one can go out there and say we put the customer last or to hell with the customer. You know, no one can say that publicly. They may act in a way that that does that. There's companies that treat people poorly, treat their customers poorly that, you know, so we, and we all know that. So that's why I was initially cynical of values, but that's an important part of values. You can have a controversial worldview that, and that's something you need moving fast and breaking things is, is a real value because it defines you and helps set you apart in a different way. Another way, you know, when you have these very generic values, like, uh, don't be a jerk or, or put the customer first or treat people well. Those values are really important too. And I think when you have a really short list of guiding principles like that, even if they're very generic values, uh, like the no jerk rule or the no asshole rule, if, if you have like, you know, you probably should have no more than three or four. If you have a really short list of values and everyone from the CEO and leaders of a company down to brand new employees share those and try and, you know, speak them out loud and, and, you know, aspire to them and try and follow them as best you can. I think that's also a real set of values, you know? So when you have more generic values like that, I think if it's a short list, you know, if you have 50 guiding principles, just practically, there's no way, no, you know, nobody will remember those. So, you know, unique values, things that are consistent and, and really from, they flow top down. And one of the ways I did this, well, I think meetings are very powerful. You know, I think with every new employee, I would sit down and talk with them for a few hours about values. I would often ask them, I would do some different exercises. I would always mix it up and do like kind of coaching workshops. I'd ask them about values, what other companies or, or organizations or schools or groups they were in, what they thought of values, what their aspirational values were. And I also, and something I launched in the last few years is I had a values reading list and I bought everyone in the company a set of books. And they would kind of change every year. We changed the books around. Uh, and we would buy the new books for existing employees. And anyone who started on their first day, we would give them, it was usually around four books. And I think the values reading list, and it evolved over time to switch out titles. But I have four that I think um, were four of the winners. And I'll share those with you now, if it's a good time. Uh, the ones that I would give uh, to everyone, and they mixed up a bit. Uh, the first one was the no asshole rule uh, written by Robert Sutton, who's a Stanford professor. Uh, the second is radical candor that's written by Kim Scott. Uh, the third was can't hurt me written by uh, this former Navy SEAL and fitness influencer, David Goggins. And the f actually this fourth one changed around the Infinite Game by Simon Sinek. That was, I think, one of our last ones. And there's a couple of other books I would buy for executives. I would kind of buy them another set of books beyond that. Uh, just, you know, when I thought the book budget was getting high. But I really think these all those first four books really corresponded. You know, because I think where I started when I talked with values about people is to really try to... I work with our marketing team in a branding agency and I remember we came up with a, a set of four values and principles I thought were really good. And I remember no one could ever remember them. <laughs> really, no one ever really remembered them. We would talk about them and they were meaningful. I actually don't remember them now. But I remember 
kind of changing those into books that were had more pithy titles and more focus, I think were a lot more actionable. And I would say the first one, the no asshole rule is really clear. And I honestly think really you could get 90% of the value out of this book just by hearing the title, you know, because I think people get it right away and I could go into articulate it, but I think another way I think of this is the no jerk rule, or I've heard a version of it, the no bozo rule for workplaces where you can't curse. And it's, I think, to dig in deeper at a high level, I think it's like having a win-win attitude versus a win-lose attitude in an organization. And again, and, and one funny story, I remember when we first launched this book program and we bought, you know, we bought copies of these books or, or versions of these books for everyone. The No Asshole Rule was in that first version. And I remember someone came back from vacation after two weeks and they just came to their desk and they saw a copy of The No Asshole Rule like on their keyboard, Right. And they got really upset. They're like, oh, someone thinks I'm being a jerk because they bought this book and left it here for me. And they didn't really, you know, so I think, you know, if you are going to buy this book, you have to buy it for everyone. <laughs> and then, you know, no one will take offense. If you just buy it for, if you, everyone chips in and buys, you know, a copy for one person in the office, it, it will feel very accusatory. But, you know, like I said, I think if there was, if I would really distill it down, you know, in the values, if this were a template other people would copy, I would say you could take the no asshole rule and radical candor and, you know, the no asshole rule, the title is really self-explanatory. I do think it's a very data-driven book. Like the author, Dr. Robert Sutton, he's a professor at the business school at Stanford. And it's a very data-driven approach to books, even though it has a very flippant title. It's a very data-driven approach to workplace behavior. Uh, they looked at a lot of data. I think they looked at, you know, tens of thousands of surveys on why people left their jobs, why people quit jobs or resigned or weren't happy at their job. And the number one reason was toxic behavior uh, from coworkers or a manager. And sometimes it's even from a customer, right? but basically another person being a jerk to them, being an asshole to them. And he defined a few different categories of negative behavior. Uh, one is negativity. One is laziness. And one is aggression. There might be a fourth kind. I remember those are the three kinds. You know, someone who's just very negative all the time. We can't do this. We're going to fail. It's not going to work out. That's a bummer. You know, anyone who's ever gone through college or high school and has ever been on a team project understands laziness. You know, there could be, <laughs> I remember this is such a shock when you're in school and do like your first group project. You're like, there's some team members who do nothing and they get the same grade as me and they literally do nothing. And I think an interesting book, point this book makes and something I really took from it is that actually with laziness and negativity, they're actually not that bad because they are not, they don't kind of spread, you know, vibrantly. That person is doing, being lazy and doing nothing. They could be worse. They could be, if they were attacking other people, they'd be doing a lot of harm. You know, when you have an employee or a coworker or a member of a team project that doesn't do any work or kind of has a negative view, people, it's almost like damaged nerves or, or, you know, a damaged, part of your body or brain where your, your body and brain will route around damage to keep working. So if there's a lazy person or someone who just has a very can't do attitude, people just learn, I'm not going to go to this person for mission critical projects. I may not count on them to do any work. I'll give them things that are very low stakes. But when you have someone who's very aggressive and attacking other people, being a, a bully, a jerk, that's the most destructive behavior because it'll drive other good people away. And it's really hard to route around that damage. It's kind of like an aggressive form of cancer that's spreading. It's like, it's not just, you know, something that isn't pulling its weight. It's something that is toxic and spreads. And, you know, it could be 
you know, really it only takes one such person and they'll drive out good people because people, that's number one people, number one reason people leave a job, they go find another job or resign is they have to deal with these toxic people. And, you know, I think that's a great book to give to everyone because it is a real problem. And I think if you don't address it, you know, especially early on in the startup, when you have a small group of people, it's, it's really easy. Usually it's really hard to encapsulate when you have 10 people and your startup side performing, you're not going to have people who have any of these negative behaviors. So it's hard to articulate your culture because everything's just firing in all cylinders. Everyone is, you know, friendly with each other and, and feels a deep shared purpose and is feeling this real excitement of, of make, changing the world. And as you scale up a company, you know, once you have to start hiring people and scaling, I think that's when, you know, it's really important to initiate this role. And it's, it's a great role to initiate from day one. If you have a small startup and one of the founders is a jerk or is, is a very aggressive person that's, you know, fights in a dirty way, it's it, the startup will never get to that point where you're growing. You just won't make it. But I've seen this is an inflection point. I kind of saw my own startup. Once you start hiring at scale, and you've got to really start putting butts in the seats and filling people in. That's when, you know, it's important to instantiate this role. And, you know, and I always saw this role as not necessarily there are specific people you don't want to hire. You know, I really think there's probably a very small percent of the working population that if you interview someone and say, hey, we have the no asshole role, there's some people who are going to be like, oh, I don't want to work here. <laughs> right. But I think for most people, just having assholes. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. And, and I would say the inverse of this role and why I think radical candor is so important is and I came out of New York City working in, you know, essentially Bloomberg is, is a financial company. They they don't necessarily work on Wall Street buying and trading, but all their customers are. And there's a certain attitude like how to articulate it. And and it, these were some of my feelings early on was like, well, you know, if you want to make an omelet, you gotta break a few eggs. So people, you know, maybe people would be like, oh, if you have this no asshole rule, it's all touchy feely until the rubber hits the road. And then who's going to really get stuff done? So I would, but I would just say, you know, having this rule, it's not an excuse ever to, you know, be low performing or, or not communicate. And I think that's where Radical Candor, the second book comes in. And I think at the high level, it's, and this is actually a case where I think Radical Candor, the title is actually a little misleading and dangerous. Like, I think if you just gave people this book, I would often give a warning that you should never say, let me give you some radical candor, <laughs> especially when you're in a position of power, almost never like read the whole book. And I think the author talks about this in the preface, because I think this book was featured in a show, uh, Silicon Valley, where they talk about radical candor. And it's, they just talk about the title. It's not clearly not people who read the book and really adhere to the principles, but you never start with, let me give you some radical candor. If you don't read the book and you're too lazy, always start with, do you have any radical candor for me? And I think it's a great counterpoint to the no asshole world because the first is a guide of what not to do. And radical candor is a guide for what to do. And just to give you an idea, the audiobook for the no asshole world is three hours. <laughs> the audiobook for radical candor is over 12 hours. So it's really easy. You get a lot from the title, like just don't be an asshole. There's a lot of funny stories and data and anecdotes about, you know, what organizations and how they deal with that. And in Radical Candor, there's a lot of great things there, but I think it's, a, you know, it's kind of a one-two punch. It's like here, let's filter out the worst toxic behavior 
that, you know, can really destroy orgs and is always toxic. And, you know, we're not going to be, but also how do we communicate in a really honest way and in a really caring way? Because there are, you know, in a workplace, in life, in any relationship, you know, there's that point where you got to put the kids in a room and say, hey, we're getting rid of our dog. We love you. We love the dog, but we're getting rid of it. You know, there, there's hard stories, hard truths you're going to have to share with people in a business. It's like, this isn't working. We have to fire people. We have to change, you know, and how do you communicate that in a good way? And I think another concept Kim Scott talks about in this book that I thought is really awesome. And people who might think like, oh, the no asshole world is all well and good, but, but how did things work in the real world? And I think Kim Scott defines this concept of um, ruinous empathy and there is this complete polar opposite of being an obnoxious jerk, which is uh, being too, I would use the word like touchy feely and being too empathic and be, you know, just being way too much, way too nice where you're afraid to tell people negative feedback. You know, I think Kim Scott gives a great example in her book where she got feedback from a colleague that she uses too many filler words like, um, and things like that. And the colleague said, you know, this makes you look dumb. You're a really smart person, but you've got to just train yourself out of it. Because people, if you say um every other word, it's going to make you sound kind of dumb, you know. And that can be really harsh feedback to give. And, you know, I think Kim Scott in short, and it's a really long book. I'd encourage everyone to read it. But what I got out of it is like the difference between, you know, criticism and radical candor is that with radical candor, you actually care deeply about the person you're giving feedback to, and your goal is to improve their life and improve your relationship. So you wanna give negative feedback with that spirit. You know, it's not giving criticism for criticism's sake to show how smart you are, to show how superior you are. If you really deeply care about your colleagues, the mission of your company, you all wanna be firing on cylinders. So you give little bits of feedback continuously kind of in a kind-hearted way, really listening, you know, I think Kim Scott in the book articulates, you know, whether or not it's criticism or radical candor, it's not what comes out of your mouth. It's what arrives at the listener's ear. You know, what is the person you're giving feedback to here? Are they going to take this feedback in a positive way and use it to make a change? Are they going to accept it? Or are they going to shut down and get defensive? Are they going to be upset? Are they going to quit their job? Are they going to think you're being a jerk? So I think there's a lot that she articulates there about how to give radical candor. You know, one is to actually care. You know, don't give criticism if you don't care about the person. You know, if you think about restaurant critics in the book, when they write a skating review of a restaurant, I don't think their goal is to actually make the restaurant better. They're, you know, they're kind of clickbaity. They're they're saying something controversial for the sake of getting an audience, getting attention, you know, entertaining people. But they're not, they don't actually want to make the restaurant and the chefs better all the time. So it's like, you know, but with you're with your colleagues and your work, you know, you have to be there 40 hours a week. You have to be working with other people. You want your relationship to be good. You want their performance to be strong, especially in a startup where you're often facing really hard problems and there's big stakes on the line. So, you know, and also giving feedback continuously every day, every week, having a culture where you can give feedback have good intent around it, as opposed to, I think, in large corporate settings where people tend to be jerks, you know, you get the once a year feedback 
and it's a dumpster fire. It's it's a lot to take in. So I'll I'll stop there because you know I could go deeper in, into some of these other books, but when I think about sharing values, I think it's important to talk about what you think values are, and the values really come you know from my experience from the CEO, the other executives and founders down. It doesn't come out of the marketing department really. It doesn't come out of you know a branding agency. And often that's, for most corporations, when you look at their values on their website, it came from the marketing department, the recruiting department, and it sounds great. And it's often really out of touch with how the company itself is run. So I think buying people books was a great hack I found because, you know, I I even, (laughs) I always said, at least I'm very optimistic. I assume you people all read these books. And I think we used a service where they could get the book or the audio book or both. And I thought that was a great investment. You know, I heard listening to an audiobook is like drinking your vegetables as opposed to eating them. And I thought having the physical book was a great token on people's desks. You know, it kind of reminded them. It was kind of an emblem to remind them, I, you know, at everyone's work desk or their workspace at home. Like you have a copy of this book for inspiration, but, you know, listen to the audiobook for 20 minutes a day. It's like a form of coaching to learn. And, you know, I would say, like, I'm optimistic. We're spending money on this. (laughs) You know, we're spending $50 per employee to buy you, you know, these books and to buy you this audio content. And I think it's a lightweight form of coaching. That's a great start. And I also thought the personal time I spent communicating with values was really important. Just really getting to know people, but just articulating, you know, I I remember being really afraid of launching this because I was like, oh, I don't know if all the employees would, would call up and say, I'm a hypocrite. I'll tell you, my wife would call me, would be like, oh, those are the books you're choosing. Do you really think you live up to those values? And the answer is no. I mean, I, I was afraid I'd be a hypocrite, I, you know, but they're my aspirational values. You know, that's what I, I want to hold myself up to. So, you know, it can be scary to articulate values because no one can meet them perfectly. It's these are, you know, the aspirational values you want to learn, lean out. And, you know, one final thing I'll say about values is they can change over time. You know, I, I think the no asset rule and radical candor, I would consider really foundational values. But as a company scaling and growing, you know, there's different needs and it's good to open yourself up. I think I, I learned about radical candor from one of my executives I work with. She was a really big proponent of it. So, you know, it's good to learn from your other colleagues and mix up what books you buy for people. But, you know, I think, you know, if you try and tie a book to every value, just for budgetary reasons, you'll keep the list short. I think you'll try and prove interesting titles, you know, they should be things that that evoke strong reactions and emotions out of people, because it'll get them thinking and it'll get they'll remember them. You know, I I think no one can remember these generic values. But when you buy people these books, you know, especially the no asshole rule, it has a curse word in it, people will remember it, you know, you mentioned like how how important reading was for you and for your employees. Uh, You mentioned coaching, I think for executives. The majority of what you learn is from real world experience. Is that, can you talk about that? Like why, why is that? Why spend all this time on reading and coaching if it's, if you're not going to learn it all right there? Yeah. And this is a paradigm I learned from my executive coach, Peter, I worked with for, for probably around five or six years as well. And, uh, and it's kind of like a pyramid. So how, and this is probably how anyone learns. And I think the tip of it is maybe 5% when you're learning about a topic, uh, like say radical candor, you know, really you'll get 
of your experience and mastery from reading or attending lectures or watching YouTube videos. And it might sound like that's a really small amount, but that's often the first exposure you have to an idea. You know, there's only so much you could learn from reading a book. And, you know, sometimes there's technical manuals versus books. You know, I, I think most people read, you know, books like the ones I listed, No Astro Rule or Radical Candor. You're really kind of learning the tip of the iceberg from it. And it's only 5%, 10% in this model, but it's often the first thing you're learning, right? So the first time you're learning about a topic. So it's often the most valuable info. It, it gets you interested and excited about something. And I think you can learn 10% more from coaching and through apprenticeship, which is talking to someone really experienced. You know, if I were talking to another CEO or another leader of an org, and I was hearing about their problems and giving them coaching, you know, I can expose them to different ideas from my career. I could listen to their problems, give them some therapy, give them some coaching. And, but that only really makes 15%. I think 85% of your mastery of a topic will come from real world experience where you're doing things. So I think in that model, reading and executive coaching, you know, I buy these, you know, you could buy books for everyone, but that doesn't mean everyone's going to read the book and that they're all going to embody those values. So I think there's follow-up with coaching from their managers, from the executives talking about this, bringing in, you know, outside coaches and, and lecturers to talk to them and train people and do workshops with people. But really you're going to gain most of your experience and most of your knowledge on topics from doing it yourself. But I do think that reading and coaching is, is really critical because that's, that's the beginning, you know, that's the tip of the iceberg. That's the first knowledge you're going to get on a topic is going to be introduced by other people in this lightweight way. And, you know, that's why I think the goal of it is, you know, books are written to really entertain and have good stories and be engaging to people and, and kind of going back to storytelling, you know, the same thing with a company pitch, even we talked about the importance of storytelling in, in a company, you know, in a five minute pitch, you're not going to learn everything you need to know about a startup, but it has to be exciting and informative and it hits some pretty big, exciting notes to get people wanting to learn more, to kind of do the diligence to go deeper. So I think reading and coaching has an analogy there. You know, it's only going to be 15% of your knowledge on a topic, but, you know, it's going to be that first kind of stake in the ground you'll learn. And it has to be really, it has to be the most distilled because when you go out in the world and really dig deep, which could be reading a lot more books, doing a lot more research, you know, running a company, interacting with people, it can mean a lot of different things. That's where you're going to really learn about it. But I think that first knowledge of new ideas is really important. And it's often the most polished, <laughs> you know, it's often the most, mm -hmm. it's got to be exciting and engaging and, and make people, you know, feel something, you know, get really engaged to want to learn more because otherwise it'll, people won't want to engage and go deeper. Next. Uh, I want to get back to the CEO trade crafting. Two things here I'd like to talk about. Gray thinking, learning how to say maybe and no. Why, why is that number one here? So, yeah, and I think this is something that I learned. And I, and I have a lot of examples I could give. And basically what I mean by gray thinking, it's a concept that I learned about for how to make this decisions. And I think the... the basic concept of great thinking is that when someone asks you a question or you have to make a decision, you don't immediately answer that question or form any opinions on what decision you want to make. So 
So I think that can be really hard for people because the moment I think most of us are asked a question, I think it's human nature and it was my human nature, you know, in large part still, where if someone asks you a question, should we go with green or black for our website? Should we run this sales campaign or not? Should we use this technology or that technology? A lot of people will immediately answer the question or want to. And I think as you learn to be a leader, you're really trying to delegate to other people <laughs> and learn from their experience. When, especially when you're a CEO, you know, you have, you know, and, and your role as CEO could change when you're, you know, the founder of a startup and it's one or two people in a room, you have to make do all the work yourself or your co-founder. But, you know, I'm thinking more of a CEO where you have an executive team and each executive on your team is often an expert in their area. You know, your VP of sales, your VP of engineering, you know, and I, I was, my background is I was an engineer I always thought I was a great engineer, but, you know, my VP of engineering will, will still have more experience in engineering than I did. You know, they've just been doing it longer. My VP of sales always will have a lot more experience in sales, but you ultimately still as a CEO have to be a decision maker. So, and, and you do have that authority and you should be making these decisions. So when your VPs come to you and ask you questions, you know, about what you want to do, changes in strategy or tactics, it's really important to explore questions, not answer immediately. And even sometimes I think, you know, the version 1.0 of the skill is you just learn to stop talking and listen to people, but still in your heart <laughs> or in your mind without articulating it out loud, you know, someone will say, should we run the sales campaign or not? And you're like, tell me more. I'm let me look at your presentation. And you know, immediately the answer is no. And their job <laughs> from that presentation is to chisel you down from the no and, and your no might come from, I don't want to spend any money. We, we budgeted, we, our budget's closed, I don't want to spend money. So they're going to have to, you know, with their presentation, really overcome that no that's in your head, you know. So great thinking is really, as you're learning about a topic, don't answer immediately or don't even form an opinion initially. And the distinction I would draw here is, you know, and I, I really think of this in the concept of being a CEO at a, at a company or startup, is you really have ultimate authority. So you will, it's not delegating the decision and saying you make the decision. It's ultimately comes down to the CEO not passing the buck and making a yes or no decision, but really not forming an opinion until you've learned all the facts. And it's really a, a decision framework to make the best decision possible. So yeah, you know, it's, it's a subtle thing, but don't answer things immediately, you know, sleep on it, don't act. And I would say 90% of the CEO job is saying no, ultimately. And there's a famous example I heard, which was that when Steve Jobs was working on the first version of the iPod, and this is an apocryphal story. I don't know if it's true or false, but it's, it's an interesting one. You know, they wanted to put an AM FM tuner on the first iPod and Steve Jobs just said, no, absolutely not. And in hindsight, you know, the iPod, which was the you know predecessor to the iPhone touch and the iPhone, the iPad, you know, it would be the silliest thing if it had an EMFM tuner, you know, on it. But at the time, it probably wasn't that crazy because most CD players and MP3, MP3 players were made by companies like Sony and other electronics companies, and they made Walkmans, which were tape decks and CD players with EMFM tuners. So slapping an EMFM tuner seemed like a logical thing in that category. It's something people wanted. So, you know, that's a big part of the job is saying no. And I think great thinking is initially saying maybe to every idea. And your goal is to really make good decisions and not have the company limited by the CEO's decision-making. Ultimately, you really, 
you know, if you really avoid forming these initial opinions, you'll be, you're really leaving yourself open to be influenced by your executives, by your experts, by other talented people in your team. And, and, you know, ultimately you have to be, there's very few decisions that are always very clearly cut when you're making them that are right. They're always kind of experiments, you know, and I think saying sometimes maybe is let's do a prototype and let's experiment. Let's get some more data. You know, you want to run a $10 million, you know, project. Can we spend $10,000 first <laughs> and experiment with it? Can we spend, you know, 10 days and $10,000 before we go into a 10 month, $10 million project, you know, can we build a little prototype? So I think that's a valuable skill is just learning how to say, you know, yes, no, and maybe, you know, I think it's maybe and no, it's like being able to listen long enough to, to not kill things in the bud, but ultimately that's a big part of the CEO job as well as to keep people focused. You have to be able to say no, keep people on vision and, you know, and kill 90% of the projects that, that people want to do. You're going to have to probably shut them down. All right. I think that is all we got time for today. There were more CEO tradecrafts. Maybe we'll have to save those for another episode, but this was really interesting. Thank you for, for sharing, Michael, and, and thanks for coming on the show. It was a pleasure. Is there anything you'd like to share with the listeners as we kind of wrap up here? Yeah, I'm, I'm working on a new company called thoughtfulplatform.com. It's in the GPT-3 space for B2B businesses, for e-commerce and professionals to, to give them a GPT-3 toolbox of tools. It's still in its really early days, but people can check that out. And thank you for having me, Oleg. It's been really great. I, you know, have a lot more to talk about, but I'm glad, you know, like I said, maybe this is the 5% iceberg of <laughs> what I have to share. And uh, you can have me back on for another podcast. We could do another 5% or go deeper. Awesome. I loved it. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for joining. And uh, we hope to talk to you soon. Awesome. Thank you, Oleg. Bye.